I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. They're not just a plant, really. They are a family member in your garden, something that you greet as soon as they've got their first bloom. You're fighting off the aphids, consoling with them when they've got black spots, giving them a good sorting out when they need their pruning. What could be more quintessentially English than a rose-covered pergola on a summer's day? In our most beloved literature and films, there are deep associations with roses. You know, from Romeo and Juliet, what's in a name? That which we call a rose or the little prince. It's the time you've wasted for your rose that makes your rose so important. It's iconic. I love roses because there's something so glamorous about them. At the last count, I have over 40 roses in my garden and they all work incredibly hard for their plot of earth. They either have a lovely scent or are repeat flowering and some of them have the added bonus of producing attractive ornamental hips in autumn. Whatever space you've got, I think there's always room for a rose. Whether you've got a courtyard or a balcony or whether you've got walls, trellis or in borders with other perennials, they look great in so many different situations. There's plenty to love about roses, from their scent to their long season of interest, to the multitude of cultivars available, and we're covering it all in today's show. We'll look at how autumn blooming roses came to be, get up close to explore why the rose smell is so evocative, and hear how a rose in the UK has just been named after an ethnic minority person. So, lots to celebrate in this week's episode of Gardening with the RHS, with me, Guy Barter. But first, a new rose is about to enter the market. This could be one of the most important roses that we will ever launch. It's this beautiful yellow variety. Really dark green, glossy foliage. Anyone who's been on a Zoom call where a picture has been shown, there are just smiles everywhere. Zera Zaidi, diversity campaigner, passionate about bringing more people into gardening. She's the founder of We Too Built Britain and has teamed up with David White, production manager for Harkness Roses, a breeder with more than 140 years experience. Together, they've created the first rose to be named after an ethnic minority Britain. 18th century gardener, John Yastumlin. I'll let Zera explain more. 
His story is quite interesting because after a traumatic start in life, because he was taken from Africa aged eight, he found love and a life in North Wales. So he was sent to live with a Wynn family in a Samhlin in Gwynedd. But he was just very talented, you know, he became a gardener, that's where he was put to work. He was a really knowledgeable plantsman and a florist, he was a skilled craftsman, and more importantly, he was treated always as a free man. And he fell in love with Margaret Grufford, who worked as a maid for the same household. And they eloped, but eventually were reconciled with the Wynne family. And when they were reconciled, they were given a cottage with a very significant garden called Narharian. And it was in recognition of John Samplin's service. And also it's for the for the history books, it's the first record of a mixed marriage, you know, mixed race marriage in Wales. So I had started a campaign called We to Built Britain that just wanted to promote positive stories around diversity representation. We managed to get the first ethnic minority face in 400 years on British currency, and we had a statues campaign. The goal was to just be very positive, to try and bring people together. And so I thought, you know, how would you open up gardening? How would you make people feel more welcome to try it out or feel connected? And having done my research, I realized that there'd never been a rose, to my knowledge, named after an ethnic minority Britain. And I thought, my God, you know, there you have it. There's the way to connect people to say, look, you know, you've got this gardener, but also it's a way to get the gardening community really excited about something. And all I needed was someone to share in that vision and someone who knew a bit more than me. And of course, David, please do come in. In Harkness Roses, you found this and it was just, it was a dream meeting them. When I first heard about the the idea, I was blown away by the enthusiasm of Zara. The only way I can describe it, it's like having a Force 8 gal blow through your office. But actually what happened was, I I took the call (laughs) and I sat back and I thought about it and I actually got Hannah who deals with our marketing and and my daughter Francesca who deals with the new roses and we sat down and we realised that actually this could be probably one of the most important roses that we will ever launch. There's something about roses. You know, it might be the most popular flower in the world. There's a universality, there's a charm. But you know, for me, for someone of ethnic minority heritage, obviously also British, and someone who does a lot of historical research, what's lovely about roses, apart from their immense beauty and variety, is that, you know, they've got a deep resonance across so many cultures and across history. And when you're doing a project that tries to connect people, the rose is the ultimate connector. I mean, you know, the first recorded reference to a rose was over 7,000 years ago, whether it was for the production of rose water in Iraq in 2000 BC, to the cultivation of roses by the Chinese in 500 BC, to the Rosa Alba introduced to the British by the Romans, which is of course considered the white rose of York. Um, You know, roses have been around for centuries. The rose belongs to many people. The rose breeding process for us is a long-term plan. We go through a very strict testing procedure. So once the roses are crossed and we've got the seedling, they're tested for seven years in the field without any sprays. 
They're tested almost to destruction because we never lift a rose if it gets a disease, so we're always comparing and checking roses to make sure that when we finally select a rose, that we know when we put it out into the, into the marketplace, it's going to do what it says on the tin. It's going to be able to produce and work very well in a garden. Now, to put it into context, we may well start with sort of planting out 40,000 seeds. Seven years later, when we're down to the final selections, we may well only launch three roses out of those 40,000 seeds. And I think when we realised the significance of this rose, we had to make sure that we were selecting a rose that could live up to the story. And then it came down to the, the sort of the colour choice. And I think in reality, it came to the end. Yellow roses, you know, signify friendship as much as anything. And, and it seemed to be the absolute perfect colour that we should select. We selected the rose that, that we did predominantly because it's, it's an absolutely nailed-on rose variety. It will do well in a garden, it will do well in a pot... We wanted to create a rose that actually anybody in the country could produce. The rose itself is a shrubby hybrid tea, so it has old-fashioned type blooms. The flower itself is a golden yellow in colour. In terms of fragrance, it's got a really sort of fruity fragrance that's actually quite strong. Foliage is excellent because obviously there's chunks of the year where, where the rose has just got the foliage, so it's got a really dark green glossy foliage. And after this pandemic, I mean, it's still ongoing, obviously, but Lord knows we need some cheer. You know, I'm blown over by how beautiful it is. And the only thing I would say to people is the three key things, feed, water and deadhead. What I would love the rose to do is to begin to have that debate about how to open up gardening, how to get people to feel as if it's for them, no matter what their background, no matter what their ethnicity, no matter what their socioeconomic status, no matter their, if they've got a disability. And also I think what you want is to open up conversations. I'm so proud of this, although Clearly, I'm, I, I wish I lived in Bedfordshire. <laughs> David would have me knocking on his door every other day, though, so it's probably not a good idea. <laughs> yeah, he, he's smiling because he knows it. Um, but, uh, you know, for four years now, I've been doing various diversity campaigns. This might be the most joyous. It just makes people smile. Thanks, Zero and David. Now is a great time to get roses in the ground, so why not grab a John Stumlin rose for your garden? It's available from 21st October from the Harkness website, roses.co.uk. And if you're thinking of planting up now, don't delay, because over winter the soil will get rather wet, but at the moment it's in perfect condition for digging a planting hole and setting out your roses, and they'll do a bit of growing before the winter cold really arrives. Roses like a fertile soil, so incorporate some compost or manure before planting and try and avoid planting where roses have grown before in the last five years. This is to avoid a thing called specific replant disease, where roses after roses um, fail to thrive. If it can't be avoided, dig a big hole and fill it with fresh soil from your veg garden or somewhere similar. I love roses because they make memories. There's often a special rose that a parent or relation had planted in a childhood garden. And for me, it's Lady Hillingdon. It grew up our house wall for so many years and her yellow blooms looked downwards into the garden and they would 
seemed as though they were having a little nose just to see what was going on down below. Our very own Jenny Bowden sharing a childhood memory of roses. In my garden, after the remarkably warm and mild September weather we've had this year, some of my single flowering roses are throwing a few autumn flowers. This is an unexpected bonus and I'm looking forward to that immensely. It won't do any harm for next year's flowering, of course, so there's no need to be concerned if some of your single roses flower now. And repeat roses, of course, will flower in flushes until the frosts arrive. But these spectacular autumn roses are only a recent phenomenon as most rose species flower from early summer. Simon Morley, author of By Any Other Name, A Cultural History of the Rose, is here to explain how autumn-blooming garden roses came to be. Well, the simple answer is because they're Chinese. At least they're half Chinese, or they got a lot of Chinese DNA. What happened was that during the 19th century, Western botanists set about crossing Chinese roses with the roses that they were familiar with from Europe. Why did they do that? Because they had discovered that the Chinese roses, and by the way, the most species roses anywhere are in China. And many of those roses had one characteristic that set them apart from European roses, and that was that they were remontant. They repeat flowered. They repeated over a long period of time. And what the Europeans set about trying to achieve was a way to breed that into the Europeans so that you'd get a, a European rose that had these characteristics of a Chinese rose. So that was the first thing that was interesting about Chinese roses. The second thing that was interesting, on the whole, Chinese roses had a more closed cup shape and as they matured, they would open up to reveal the stamens inside. But essentially, they were closed cup, and they also very often quite shrub-like in their form, the way they grew. And this was all very appealing too to the Europeans, particularly as roses were beginning to become a, a mainstay of suburban cottage gardens. They wanted these plants that were more manageable. Because it's interesting that when you read old accounts of roses, they're often described as trees, rose trees. Why? Because many of the older roses, they could grow to very, very large proportions. Not the kind of thing you want in your suburban garden in the East End of London, which we now call hybrid teas. Why hybrid tea? Tea from China. They're hybrids between some of the characteristics of Western roses Western roses tend to be a bit more hardy than Chinese roses, for example. Some of the Western roses tended to have, some of them anyway, rather more powerful scent too. And so that was something appealing. Shakespeare often talks more about the scent of a rose than the colour or the look of the rose. It was that that was very often most appealing. Now, one of the things he'd have been very disappointed about while looking at the roses in East London would be that most of them, although they're blooming in November, wouldn't have had much scent that was traditionally associated with roses.
If you want to hear more about the history of the plant and its journey into Europe, listen to our recent podcast episode called Roses and Other Fawny Issues. And if Simon's inspired you to give autumn blooming roses a go, then there are just a few things to keep in mind. Plant them in a nice sheltered spot where there's plenty of sun and top dress them with some rose fertiliser during the summer. And Simon and I aren't the only fans of these plants. I'm out in the floral garden now and I'm looking at a number of roses that are still in flower. And just next to me here is a rose called Sweet Juliet. And I'm just having a sniff of it now. Oh, that's good. That's a, a really fragrant, sweet rose scent. And it's also a very lovely apricotty peach colour, which is very attractive. That's Julia Bridger, the director of Keenstone Mill in Dorset. She's in her botanical garden dedicated to perfumes and scented plants, and she absolutely loves roses. So much so, she might want to be one in another life. If I was a rose, what would I be? Um, oh gosh, that's a tricky one. I'm probably old-fashioned. <laughs> old-fashioned, um, a bit untidy. <laughs> um, so I would be a, um, a shrub rose, probably. <laughs> I'd like to think that I, it was a, a nice scented rose and possibly a creamy apricot colour. I would be Maygold, it's very, very fawny, so that some no one would cut me. <laughs> We've come back inside with her to hear all about the rose's iconic smell, which has been used to woo people for centuries. In fact, according to legend, Cleopatra filled a room with a foot-deep bed of rose petals to weaken Mark Antony's resistance to her charms. One to try on Mrs Barter, perhaps? Anyway, back to Julia. She's here to tell us all about the fragrance of roses. Here at Kenston Mill, we divided our formal gardens, which we call the collection, into different perfume families. And the floral garden, where most of our roses are, we call the Padua Garden because the design is based on one of the original botanical gardens, um, which was created in the Renaissance period in Padua. And we've got probably, I'm going to say, about 130 different varieties of roses in that particular garden. And they are all scented. And they range from shrub roses through floribundas, through to hybrid teas and rosa rugosa. So all varieties, but as I say, they're all scented. There are, in fact, only two varieties that are used to make fragrance traditionally and they are the Rosa Damascena which is the one that comes from the Middle East and is grown all through Iran and Turkey and Afghanistan and that has the most glorious smell. It's a shrub rose and it was well its ancestors were brought to the west during the Crusades and it is a fantastic rose. It's quite a large shrub rose, a bit untidy, it needs some good pruning but its flowers are scented a little bit like Turkish Delight, really good Turkish Delight and a very strong fragrance. 
However, it is only once flowering. So if you want to grow it yourself, then I would suggest that you put it somewhere, not right in the front of a border, but somewhere near the back, but obviously somewhere where you're going to get that gorgeous scent as you pass it. Um, it flowers for about a month to six weeks, um, usually early June in this country. And yes, a beautiful rose. The other variety that's used for fragrance is the Rosa Centifolia, which is grown in the south of France, or that's where it was traditionally grown, all around grass, um, which is considered to be the sort of centre of perfumery in the Western world. And it's similar. Again, an old rose, bright pink, beautiful scent. And that one is nowadays mostly grown in Morocco. Unfortunately, we can't grow roses here for perfume because you actually need 4,000 kilos of petals to make one kilo of oil. So we would need an army of people because they all have to be picked by hand and we would need acres and acres and acres um, of roses. So what we grow instead is Pelagonium graviolans, which is a type of, well, in perfume, they just call it geranium, but it's a rose-scented pelagonium. And in fact, perfumers really like it at the moment. It's very much in fashion because it's slightly fresher than true rose, not quite as sweet. And so it's more contemporary. It's got elements of citrus and mint in there as well as the rose beautiful scent and we grow it through the central paths of our gardens as well as obviously growing it in the crop fields on on a larger scale and it scents the whole garden particularly actually at this time of year right through to the frosts um, it is absolutely glorious it's a great plant to grow in a pot too if you want to grow something in a container At the moment, at this time of year, um, apart from the Pelagonium graviolans, we've got one of my favourites, a rose called Champagne Moment. It's a floribunda, it's quite a large one, and it's got the most beautiful apricot to cream flowers, and it's just prolific all the way through the summer, and it's still going strong. Another favourite of mine is one called Hot Chocolate. All these are scented. Um, not quite so strong a scent. doesn't smell of chocolate, but it has the most amazing colour. It's sort of a dark, rich orange with chocolate colouring to it on some of the petals and very, very beautiful. I was going to suggest, actually, for those that want to get the sort of old rose quality or type of flower that isn't once flowering but repeat flowering then I would definitely recommend one called Enchantress which is repeat flowering um, but it has the same sort of scent as the ones that are used in perfumery like the Rosa Damascena and uh, it's similar in looks as well so a, a lovely pink with um, double flowers so that's beautiful. Well, I think ever since, well, the 16th century, roses have been popular in perfumery, particularly in France. It's extraordinary, really, when you think what they used to do to create the oil. And it was such a complicated process. Basically, what they used to do was um, have trays, wooden trays with a glass base, and they used to fill them with animal fat. 
And literally everyone in grass used to go out and pick the flowers first thing in the morning. And then they'd bring them into huge warehouses where they'd have great piles of petals. And then all the women in the city used to sit there with these trays in front of them and literally press petals individually into the fat. And they would do that all day and every day during the rose harvest season. So one tray after another right the way through and then three or four days later they peel all the petals off and put another row of petals on and so they'd carry on doing that as I say for the whole period of the harvest. At the end of that period the fat has soaked up the rose oil and then they would separate the oil from the fat and I mean it's just I don't know who came up with that process but they were doing that in the sort of 17th, 18th, 19th century Nowadays, they do it through solvent extraction, which um, (laughs) is still pretty complicated because of the quantity of petals that are needed and uh, the fact that you have to pick them by hand. Rose oil is still extremely expensive and, in fact, it's more expensive than gold. What amazed me is um, when I first started getting into roses was the variety of different scents that you get and they are all subtly different. And so that, I think, is a, is a good starting point to get people enthused about roses. And I know a lot of people aren't keen on, on rose perfumes. I think that's partly because a lot of rose perfumes are made with synthetic ingredients nowadays because rose oil is so expensive. But yes, no, rose perfumes aren't for everybody. However, I do think that roses in a garden can't be beaten. Julia Bridger. Well, that's all for today's show. For more on this iconic bloom, head to rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast or check out our show notes. All that's left to say is goodbye from me, Guy Barter. Walking down the path in my garden, and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. 
Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced-rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs> 